Welcome to the Open Book Unbound podcast. We're delighted to be back in your ears as part of the Bank of Scotland Foundation's grant to us to record another six podcasts. So you can find us at the first Monday of every month, putting out a new podcast, which will have to do or link with some new material again on our website and in the Unbound newsletter, which are works written for us by six different authors. I can't actually believe that we're uh, <laughs> now recording our December podcast. I know. Um, when we started back in March, I didn't think we'd be still doing this. But I have to say, like you, I'm delighted to be back and to get the chance to do another monthly podcast and introduce some new work and talk about yeah. it. So exciting to have new stories to look at too. So can I make a confession to our listeners out there, which is that we're recording this a week in advance. So it's not actually December yet, but the reason I'm telling you this, so you can all get in line behind me, is that it's the morning after Thanksgiving. And I know we're in Britain, but I always celebrate Thanksgiving with the family. And the reason I'm telling you that is because I am eating pumpkin pie for breakfast this morning. So before you say anything, Claire, all of you out there just nod in agreement. Yes, it's reasonable to eat pumpkin pie for breakfast. I reckon that's a vegetable, Marjorie. So it's one of your five a day. Oh, so if I make pumpkin pie, it counts, but chocolate cake doesn't? Well, I don't know. You do tend to blur the, the edges. I couldn't believe what you were telling me about your sweet potato, double-baked sweet potatoes yesterday. I think you should share the recipe for that. Okay, so this is the craziest vegetable, non-vegetable dish that we have as a part of Thanksgiving. It depends on where in the States you're from. If you're from the Midwest, you have kind of mashed sweet potatoes with a layer of marshmallow on top that's back in the oven so the marshmallow melts and goes a little crispy on the top. But the way I do it, which I suspect your children have experienced, Claire, is to double bake the sweet potatoes, bake them, scoop the insides out, mix them with brown sugar and butter, huge quantities which almost outweigh the, the sweet potato itself, pipe them back into the skins and then put marshmallows, pecans, a bit of maple syrup on top and then bake them. So you basically forget that there's anything in there apart from sugary sweets. My kids think of them as a pudding, but luckily we get to eat them alongside the turkey and cranberry sauce and stuffing and everything else. So that's one thing, but the other thing is really different here is that the American stuffing is so different than your British version. We don't have meat in stuffing. I, I was shocked the first time we saw that. So I guess it's a bit of a Christmas preparation chat anyway, but our stuffing is kind of cubed bread that's basted with turkey drippings and other things. So my kids love that too. So I suspect they'll be having that with pumpkin pie for breakfast this morning. I have to say the sweet potato sounds delicious, but as a dessert... I could not imagine eating it. I mean, do you have gravy? Do you put gravy on all that sugar? You wouldn't. You wouldn't put. So you have a sweet potatoes and then mashed potatoes with gravy and then and no roast potatoes. It is a. It's a meal. It's probably very similar to the kind of fixings you would have here for Christmas. But there are very standard things. You can't make roast potatoes for Thanksgiving. You can't have things like crackers for Thanksgiving. You got to do the things that you have to do for Americans on Thanksgiving, even if you're living in Britain. So the Americans I know here were doing the Thanksgiving version yesterday for Thanksgiving, and then they'll do the Christmas one with parsnips and pigs and blankets and everything for Christmas. It's funny, but it's so similar that it means by the time you get to Christmas, you definitely don't want a turkey. So there we go. That's prepped you all out there for thinking about what you're going to make for your holiday meal, whatever the holiday is. But it does mean by the time I get there I'm quite often not up for making another big meal so watch out Claire I might come around to yours uh, well you'll be getting turkey if you do so just depends if you can cope with turkey twice in a quarter
Today we're going to be looking at some poetry and also a new story by Liz Treacher called The Christmas Box. And as I said earlier, it's one of our um, six stories that we've chosen that are new work to include in the Unbound project. So a bit like the last time, we've got some new work by writers that we want you to hear. You'll be able to find the text on our website, but also just be able to listen to them when we read them just now, just like an ordinary open book group. Well, we start with a poem today because, you know, it's, you know, I'm a poet. Yeah, let's do that. Do you want to read it? Yeah. The one we've chosen for today is uh, The Coming of Light by Mark Strand, who's an American poet. It's a little tiny poem. Even this late it happens, the coming of love, the coming of light. You wake and the candles are lit as if by themselves. Stars gather Dreams pour into your pillows, sending up warm bouquets of air. Even this late, the bones of the body shine, and tomorrow's dust flares into breath. I love this little poem. I had to read it a couple of times just for it to settle with me, because there's so, it's little as you say, but there's so many ideas that are squashed into just a few lines. It's quite dense. Your your brain starts chuntering away as soon as you even read that first line, even this late it happens. It's a lovely one for this time of year, because it can mean lots of different things even this late. So you could read it as a kind of end of November poem, you know, that despite the time of year, despite the dark, particularly the year we've all had out there and we've had, I've had, you've had, even this late, you know, you can find the good, the coming of light. And also even this late in the day. So each day, no matter what's gone before and how many eggs you dropped opening the fridge this morning or how many pans you burned or how many things that didn't quite go according to plan in the course of the day, even in this day, you can still turn things around. Because that's a lovely image that the coming of light and waking and the candles are lit. Even if just the time we're talking about is a day, there's still the opportunity to light a candle and bring in the light. So rescuing a day, rescuing a moment, I suppose, on a smaller scale. But obviously for me, the poem is largely about getting older. You know, it was written in 2002 or published in 2002. So he will have been well into his 60s. You know, and so for me, it's that it's hopeful in the sense that even as we approach what we might think of as the latter part of our lives, there's still the opportunities there. There's still the opportunity to dream. So it's not just that good things happen, but that we have the ability to dream for our future. It's a really beautiful hopeful message I think for me that there is still the opportunity to plan and dream. And for me it puts me in mind of the Edwin Morgan at 80 poem that we looked at on this podcast that there's still an absolute joy in unknown being best and not necessarily knowing exactly what's around the corner being a positive thing and I'm by nature a planner and I, I kind of like to know what's coming and what's up next. And one of the things that's been really difficult for me at the moment is just really losing the ability to know what's coming next. And it's little sort of reminders of this that like this one and like at 80 just sort of remind me that sometimes not knowing's fun and good and you know you don't necessarily have to know every single thing and there's a joy to be found in waking up to see the candles being lit when you didn't expect them to be lit and that there might be possibilities out there that are beyond our imagination and I don't mean extravagance just that they're beyond what we would have thought could happen at a particular time in our lives you know that idea that the idea that, that even this late the bones of the body shine that your body might be capable of something that you don't 
don't think it's capable of now, you know, that it, at later at some stage it might be. So it kind of feels like it blows open the doors of imagination as well in terms of, yes, we can dream and still there are things that are possible that we don't think will happen. And whether those are um, reconciliations or health or anything really, or as you say, planning or trips or whatever. In my case, it'll be when I get to go to the States to see family again. It, maybe maybe what will happen next year will be, will be better than what I would have planned. For me as well, there's echoes around you know, learning new skills, that idea that as you get older, you can still master new things. You can still try things that you haven't tried before. And there isn't a cutoff for having a go at new stuff. Well, I mean, and that's been true for me in the last couple of years. You know, I was sporty in my early days. Then I just stopped for 20 odd years and I've taken up running again and sea swimming. You know, I never would have thought if you'd said to me five years ago, you'll be running long distances and getting in an icy North Sea, I would have just laughed. So it, it wouldn't have even occurred to me that it was possible. So the idea that, that there's something else waiting for me, you know, in the next decade of my life is a joy, really. Or even that it's possible is a, is a real revelation. So I think that's really true. And that that's what I read into the bones of the body shine. Because, you know, in my late, very late 40s, the bones of this body are starting to shine in ways that they haven't for 20 years, which is really nice. So I recognize that even though I'm not 60 odd. But here's a question. What is the last line, which is tomorrow's dust flares into breath, mean? Yeah, for me, I think it's around, you know, like dust would generally have a pretty negative connotation. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. You know, what is dust? It's it's shed skin, really, isn't it? It's not needed. But for me, that puts a positive spin on it that, you know, there's energy and potential and possibility in the dust and, and the flaring into breath is, is giving it a life. There's still life in it. I almost have a picture in my head of, I feel like in our youth, there were a lot more banger cars around and that might have been just in the US when they don't have the same MOT system. But so we drove an awful lot of cars that we weren't necessarily sure would start, <laughs> especially when you were 16 and 17. So that kind of, you know, turning the crank and going rah, 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 and thinking, come on, come on, come and ca catch, you know, shouting at your car in the middle of the winter. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be dust very soon, but but it's still flaring into breath kind of moment. Now, I'm no, I don't feel quite like that yet, but I can imagine feeling like that, like waking up and thinking, ah, I've got another day, you know, in a way that feels grateful. And I suspect there are lots of people at the moment, particularly, you know, who feel that way, like oh, I've been given another day. That's a lovely choice. Thank you, Liz, for that. That was one that Liz picked out as one that she wanted read alongside, or she suggested should be read alongside her story. Shall we start the story? Liz suggested that she write this piece around a theme of celebration that and that's a theme that you'll see carried right through all the writing in our December newsletter not necessarily just around Christmas but just gen more generally around that idea of celebrating so Liz's story is called the Christmas box she spots him coming along the street his flat cap bobbing above the sweetie jars it floats high above the humbugs then disappears behind a dark jar of toffee and reappears above the gobstoppers. She doesn't look for him every day, just on a Friday. He always comes on a Friday. Well, since September anyway, when he started putting a penny into the Christmas fund. I'd like to put a penny by, he said quietly, that first time, for Christmas. That's fine. Ivy opened her small white hand and Jim opened his large red one 
and he dropped the penny from his hand into hers. But the following week he avoided her hand completely and dropped the coin onto the counter. It bounced, then rolled along the shiny wooden surface and onto the floor. When he bent down to hunt for it, it made her feel dizzy. The following Friday, Jim put his hand down hard and flat on the counter and then carefully lifted it up again, leaving a penny lying still and quiet on the polished wood. When Ivy picked it up, it was red hot. It had left a small white circle on his palm and she wondered how long it had been pressed against his skin for. She took the penny and made a note of it in the Christmas book and Jim watched her do it. Then he said a quiet thank you and left. By October, he'd perfected a foolproof method for handing the money over. He would come in nonchalantly, hands in his pockets, coins jangling. Then he would pull out his right hand, and there was a penny held tight between his thumb and forefinger. And he would place the penny carefully on the counter, so there was no chance of it rolling. And Ivy would pick up the penny and make a careful note of it in her ledger. Sometime in November, just before or after bonfire night, he made a comment about the weather. It was surprisingly cold or hot, one or the other. Anyway, he mentioned it, and Ivy nodded her head in agreement as she noted down the latest addition to his savings. As if encouraged by her nod, Jim loitered a while in front of the licorice, staring wistfully into the glass jar until an old lady came in and he sidled out into the dark again. The rest of the November transactions were carried out in silence, an awkward silence, but not an unpleasant one. It was a silence that always brought two pink spots to Ivy's cheeks and a slight sweat to Jim's penny. I love the beginning of this story, that image. It takes you a minute, or it took me a minute to work out what's happening, that his head is floating above humbugs and then toffee and gobstoppers. You know, it took me a moment to notice that for me, she's seeing him come in the shop from the outside through the jars of sweets that must have been in the window. Yeah, the minute that I worked that out, I could envisage the shop window exactly. (laughs) And it really reminded me of the sweetie shop back home where I got to go on a Saturday and spend my pocket money, where basically the window was almost completely obscured by the jars of sweets, apart from a few inches above each jar on the above each shelf. You'd almost get, you know, a stripy version of a passerby because you could only see a couple of inches of maybe their hat and then their midriff and then maybe down at their knees. And it made me think she must be looking for him to notice that. You know, I I recently was working in an office where sort of the middle of the window was blacked out and you could only see the very top of people's heads or their knees downwards. And you very quickly stop looking because you can't identify people that way or it's very difficult to. So I was thinking if she's noticing that, then she will be looking in a way that you wouldn't otherwise be. When I first read it, I kind of almost didn't register the flat cap. I thought it was a little boy coming into the sweetie shop. But obviously, as, as you read on it, 
becomes clearer that it's not. I was only reading it again this morning that I thought, oh, that flat cap's another clue. It tells us something about Ivy before we even get into their interactions, that she's looking, not just necessarily for him, but that she is looking. So because I can imagine that it kind of work if there's nobody in the shop, there's not a lot else to do. You know, it's not like, well, as a girl, I worked in a bakery cookie shop, actually. But there was always something to do in terms of making more cookies or whatever. But if you've got in a sweets shop, it's not like you're going to be managing the merchandise. You know, they're jars of sweets. So apart from keeping the place tidy. I was going to say, I think I might be over managing the merchandise if I was working in a sweetie shop. Here's the question. When he comes in and wants to put a penny by for Christmas, does he know Ivy? Do we feel like they know each other? Do you, or is this their first interaction? I think because she looks for him on a Friday that she might know something of him or she might like the look of him if she doesn't know him. Because it feels like it's a positive looking for him. It's not, our, oh no, here he comes again. Yeah, no, I definitely feel like she's got an eye out for him in a nice way. But, you know, what makes him what makes him come into the shop? Apart from putting a penny by, I guess he decided to save his money for something. The description of the handing over as well gives a little clue to me as well that the contrast between her tiny little white hand and his large big red hand and the penny being hot. And he does that the first week and they touch fingers. But then he doesn't do it after that. And, I, you know, it made me kind of think, why not? You know, and then as we read on, we get a wee clue. Oh, well, that's interesting. I wonder, I was going to ask you before we even get to that, when he drops it, that's obviously for me as a kind of nervousness, right? And he bends over to catch it. Why does that make her dizzy? Is she kind of swooning? Is she swooning or is she imagining if she bent down and scrambled onto the counter, how she would feel? I don't know. It's funny, the idea that watching a man bend over looking for something on the floor, making you dizzy. <laughs> Made me think, maybe I don't have that much in common with Ivy. <laughs> maybe she gave her a moment where she knew she wasn't being watched in that, you know, exchange. So it gave her a moment of reflection, I don't know. If I drop something and I'm scrabbling around looking for it, you can imagine how you would feel a bit off kilter, if not dizzy. And maybe she's projecting into him. Oh, maybe that's it. I mean, I expected him to feel a bit dizzy. Like I, you know, I expected her to kind of laugh or giggle or something, but... It made me think she was quite an empathetic soul. Yeah, definitely. And then I have the sense of the following Friday when he puts his hand down flat on the counter, leaving the penny there that he spent quite a long time pondering and thinking about how he's going to hand over the coin. He's thought through his methodology. Well, he's obviously been pressing it into his hand, hasn't he? Because he's got a white circle. It's hot. You know, you know, I mean, I remember that that experience. It's such a beautiful observation of Liz's that when you've been holding a coin for so long, they're hot. I definitely have memories of being handed a coin and it being hot from someone else's body, you know, someone else's hand or pocket or whatever. And noticing that because we think of coins as cool, kind of inanimate objects, but they are something that takes on well, they can take on something from the, the holder. I also have memories of grasping a coin and making it hot myself and noticing that. So that trip to the sweet shop for me on a Saturday morning and you'd be given your 50 pence or whatever it was to go and choose what you were going to spend it on. And, you you know, at that age, I wouldn't have a purse or a handbag or anything like that. And I would just keep it just grasped in my hand, scared of losing it between being given it at home and getting to the sweet shop and it being warm you know, at the end of that process. I always think it's a shame with coins that you can't tell whether they're ones you've had before. I mean, it's hard at the notes as well, but I don't know if I've said this to you before, but when I was a teenage girl, my dad used to always give me a note and sign it 
and say, put it in the back of your wallet in case this was before mobile phones. So in case you need to get home, you know, if you need a taxi or whatever, and you can't reach us or you don't have access to a phone, you'll always have it. And if you spend it, I won't be mad at you, but I need, I need to replace it. So it was fun because every once in a while you would have to spend it and that was fine. But every once in a while I'd be given twice, I think in my life, I was given a note with my dad's signature back to me, which was funny in a shop or something. So it's a shame that you can't have that same thing about coins and how they can't, you know, if you know it's something that's come back to you. But, and it makes me wonder what she's doing with the penny, what Ivy's doing with the penny. And then it makes me think he's really been like, that's been part of his thinking through the week about what to do, how to hand over the penny. Because it says by October, it's taken him a whole month to foolproof the method. <laughs> Sounds quite cool though. I can see it's almost like a cigarette flick in my head. I don't know about you, about how he hands it over. Is he trying to avoid touching her? Is that what's going on here? I think he's quite shy. When we get on a wee bit further and he talks about the, the, the time that he speaks to her about the weather, it really feels like he's had to screw up his courage to do that. You know, and then he hangs around the licorice until someone else comes in. Like, it almost feels like there was something else he wanted to say, but he lost his courage to do it. And then, you know, there's no opening of the floodgates because he's spoken to her once. It then becomes natural. He then doesn't speak to her again for the rest of the month. <laughs> other than that, the transactional penny chat. Yeah, I love the hanging around the licorice as if that's like a euphemism for something. But, you know, it could become he's just the kind that hangs around the licorice. And I don't know, for some reason, I think that she likes him even though... So far it's given me very little you know you could almost I mean I guess it depends on the reader right because I I want her to like him but you know you could read it in a way that he's creepy I think that little phrase an awkward silence but not an unpleasant one and then it being a silence that brought two pink spots to Ivy's cheek and a slight sweat to Jim's penny for me I want to read that as being them kind of liking each other mutually there being a mutual liking there But what's the point of an awkward silence and not unpleasant? I was trying to think about whether that is a thing I've ever experienced. Because awkward for me is not pleasant. Um, I kind of had it in my my head that both of them quite wanted to speak. But they didn't know what to say. And there's maybe a little spark of chemistry between them, which is slightly awkward because they're uncertain how to handle it. But actually, it's not so awkward that they don't still enjoy being in each other's company for that little bit longer. But come on, they've got the whole week to think of something to say. There is always the weather. Isn't that why people talk about the weather? I mean, there's always, oh, it rained a lot on Tuesday. I mean, look, we could give them some tips here <laughs> or anything, you know, like, what's your favorite suite? Would you like one? Why doesn't she offer him one? Yeah. And then he just hangs around. I mean, you could also read it the other way around. I mean, I'm just being devil's advocate here, but like he comes in every Friday, gives her a penny and he hangs around and it just, she gets more and more embarrassed. Hmm. You've had all week to come up with anything to say. I'm not sure we're the best people to talk about experience of silences. (laughs) As we natter on in our podcasts about, yeah, literature. Shall we finish the story and see what happens? And now it's December, and here comes his cap, bobbing above the lozenges. He walks into the shop, coins jiggling. The last penny appears and is placed, without incident, onto the counter. That's me paid up, he says. Oh, aye, that's right, she says, as if it's just occurred to her. I'm not wanting a sweetie tin, I'm wanting chocolates. He points to the largest box up on the top shelf. Do I have enough for those? Just enough. Ivy takes the stepladder, climbs up, brings the chocolates down and hands them over. They're for you, he says, 
eyes fixed on the counter. She gives a little start for me. He tries again, keeping his eyes on the counter but nudging the box back towards her. They're for you, Ivy. It's the first time he said her name, and she can hear it rolling around on his tongue like a new suite. That's very kind of you, Jim, she says stiffly. But there's a clue in the way she says Jim. He smiles shyly and turns for the door. Then, with one hand on the doorknob, he looks back. Happy Christmas, Ivy. And he lifts his cap. I'll write you a right. (laughs) (laughs) Hopeless romantic. But I had kind of thought it was her sweetie shop. And so she could basically have what she wanted. So it seemed a kind of an odd... Oh, I thought she was just working in the sweet shop. Yeah, I think you're right. That would make more sense. And I guess if they're using the names, their names, then they will know each other from somewhere else. Or else it's such a small town that everybody knows everybody's name. Because it does say that's the first time he said her name and she can hear it. Here's something we didn't talk about. How old are they? Well, for me, the flat cap suggests someone older. So 60s, 70s. And I guess... Although I know Ivy's come back into fashion as a name, it's a name that I still associate as being sort of older generation. Yeah, it's a name that when we got a kitten recently, the kids wanted her to have an older person's name. So the options were Ivy or Olive. But saying that I know a couple of Ivies who are under 10 now, so I think it's one of those names, you know how names kind of have fashions? And I think those sort of names that you and I would maybe consider because of not knowing people of our age that have those names would consider them as older names. But I think now they would they sort of bridge the gap. Yeah, definitely. I've got friends who have a child called Olive as well, which I at the time when she was born, I remember thinking, wow, that's a blast from the past. And now it's quite cool. If they're not in their 20s, either either the story for me is happening a long time ago where there was this kind of formality and that just resistance. Reserve, isn't it? Yeah. So you could hap- you can imagine it happening in the 20s or the 30s where someone's putting and the putting a penny away is a really older thing. Yeah, and it probably was actually a penny. You know, I would use the word penny to describe a coin of any denomination really now. If I was giving my young niece a coin to put in her purse or whatever, I'd say put that penny in there and it might be a pound coin or or whatever. But I wonder if actually here it is actually a penny. Yeah, and I think if you think, I mean, and it, it maybe dates it too, if you think if someone's putting something away every week for 12 weeks and it buys the largest box of chocolates... And I wondered if it was, I started to wonder if it was a scheme, you know, if it was a scheme, if you gave them, you know, a certain amount of money every week for 12 weeks, whether you would then have anything on a particular shelf or it's a nice idea because he's saying, I don't want the sweets, so I'll have the largest box of chocolates. Yeah, it's a really nice idea, but it definitely dates the story. And I think they could be older as well um, in the way that they respond to each other or don't respond to each other or have this kind of formality and the way they use names as well. I don't know. Um, I think it's something you do in Britain that you might not realize you do using someone's name in speech, in speaking to them is a really specifically British thing, I think. So I, there's someone in particular and whenever she spoke to me, she would use my name. So she would say, well, could you put the plates on the table, Marjorie? Or I don't, I don't know if I agree with you, Marjorie. And she would say that even when it was just the two of us speaking. And I remember thinking that she didn't like me because it was a really, it was such a strange, for me, it was such a strange manner of speech. But now, of course, I've encountered so many people that do that. And sometimes I think it's regional too, but it doesn't have 
anything to do with what I originally thought it was, which is that someone didn't like you. That's the way you, I would know you would speak to someone if you're across with them. I think it is maybe then perhaps very UK based habit because I would certainly remember in, in my work days being introduced to you know, in a certain networking event or whatever, being introduced to a number of people in a group and working really hard to remember their names, knowing that I would be using them in the conversation, even though they were standing there. That's interesting. You know, so that would be, and and you would do, I mean, as a sort of young um, lawyer who was sort of moving up, I guess, the partnership pathway, you would go and do specific training on, you know, how to successfully network, how to to present. And, and one of the things that would form quite a big chunk of that time would be, you know, tricks and tips for remembering people's names when you're introduced to 20 people in half an hour in an event. Never realized that that was anything out of the ordinary before. Yeah, it's funny because I do, like I said, this one person used it a lot. And for the first couple of meetings, I thought, she just doesn't like me. Because again, I would, uh, not not doesn't like me, but you know, doesn't warm to me particularly. But then, you know, when I spend time in Wigtown, for example, people use my name in speech a lot. Now, luckily I've got over it and I realize that it's not personal or it's, it is personal in a positive way. But it would never, like if you and I were sitting in the office, it would never occur to me to say, I don't know, Claire, I'm not sure if I agree with you. I don't know, Claire, if we should include that in the celebrations pack. For me, that's a kind of denomination of annoyance. Um, and I've, certainly if I do it with my children, it's because I'm annoyed with them. <laughs> Well, feel free to do it because I wouldn't assume you were annoyed at me if you did. So, but when they do it here, it makes me think it's it's adding something. So why use someone's name in speech when you know they know it and you know they know you know their name? Like, I think it's about acknowledging that you've taken the time to remember and the care to remember their name. I think you're more likely to do it with someone you know less well as a, as an acknowledgement that you were important enough to me that I took the time to remember your name. And I, if I don't remember the name of someone I've met before, I find it quite embarrassing. I, f- I find it's almost insulting to them, especially if I've met them more than once. Yeah, which makes me think of that. I watched a funny Seinfeld episode with my kids recently where they went through that awkward thing where someone comes up to a group of you and, and you've already said to the person next to you, I can't remember that person's name. And so you have that awkward, hello, so nice to see you moment. And you've basically prepped your friend to say, hi, I'm Marjorie. And you are, <laughs> which is, which the kids were dying laughing because episodes like that are so good at pointing out the, the awkwardness in the everyday life. So yeah, I guess we all feel that, but it's funny because we would never use it in speech. So here it makes it feel like it's a little bit more endearing. And actually I've learned that certain individuals definitely, I can think of in Wake Town who use my name are doing it in endearing, not because not they particularly love me, but it's, it's almost an act of kindness, you know, or a familiarity or, yeah, I don't know, something positive rather than what I initially thought it was. So I guess that's what it is here because he's, he's already said Ivy once, but then he says, happy Christmas, Ivy, as a nice, you know, nice thing. Yeah, what a lovely story. Yeah, I enjoyed that. And who knows? Well, maybe we can ask Liz to write us the second part. Chapter two. Yeah, what happens next? So I think that's us for our chat this week. I can't believe how quickly the time's flown by. Um, Do drop us an email at info at openbookreading.com because we love uh, hearing what you think about the stories and poems that we discuss 
on our podcast and we've really missed it over the last few months when we haven't had the opportunity to record so many so do get in touch and and share your thoughts yeah we'd we'd love to hear what sort of things you're saving up for because i feel saving up is a different thing now but i know that we do it in different ways so you may be saving up time or yeah saving up christmas cards or saving up different things i'd love to think about that in a different way Um, but also your preparations for your celebrations whatever they might be this month coming and as marjorie said you can get hold of the text that we've talked about today on our website at openbookreading.com and you can sign up for the newsletter if you'd like to do that because they're included in that too and that will drop into your inbox as an email so thank you so much for having us in your ears again and we look forward to being back with you next month bye from us both